and welcome to the special edition of Women with Balls, sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group. As technology becomes ever more part of our daily lives, banking is no different. You've probably already used some fintech innovations in your life, even if you didn't call it that. Monzo, Klarna, Just Giving. The flexibility of fintech can be particularly helpful to women in their day-to-day lives. But if that's the case, why is fintech mostly used and created by men? I'm joined by my panel to discuss these issues and more. Nikki Morgan, Baroness of Coates, a former Conservative Cabinet Minister and Chair of the Treasury Select Committee. Chion Wara, a Shadow Science Minister who was Head of Telecoms at Ofcom. And Jill Wiley, Transformation Director at Lloyd's Banking Group, who is kindly sponsoring this podcast. Chi, so Monzo is something which I think it's hard to think of any of your friends who don't have it. We also, I think, if you're looking at fintech, things like Just Giving could come into it. You know, those charity sites, which often are used to, particularly in coronavirus, actually fund lots of businesses that are struggling. Um, there's also cryptocurrency. I think you previously said that had the potential to reduce consumer reliance on big banks. So is fintech something that ultimately gives power to the consumer, do you think? Well, I think the fantastic thing and the thing that really inspires me about fintech is the potential to do exactly that. I mean, you know, that that like finance, the finance sector has been the sector that in some ways has been the least sort of changed and disrupted by technology. If you think about how all our lives have changed, if you think about the way in which tech is you know is, is transforming the, the high street, you know, we still have the big banks. You know, I mean the last time I looked at the statistic, I really hope it's changed, but you were more likely to divorce your spouse than to change your bank you know and there's a lot you know this huge sort of consolidation and uh, really it is it's bricks and mortar in the real world but it's very sort of established and unchanging sort of in the tech world as well so through you know what technology can do is give power to the consumer to the to on their you know on their on their phone they can have their banking world and also you know people can come together to support particular protests or to, or to support particular good causes but like everything in tech katie it is all it's about how and whether it's, it's the decisions that we make as a society because right now it is the big banks that are buying up most of the um most of the fintech sort of applications and they have that what they call accelerators to get to get new new fintech applications out there and also you know there's a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies um if i had a pound for every time i've been told that blockchain is going to resolve the world's problem i'd be extraordinarily rich yes nikki we had a survey from dla that found that 29 percent of financial services companies plan to engage with fintechs but 19 percent plan to invest in them which touches on cheese point about how they're not necessarily going to be independent, that they can move into these corporations. So if we look specifically, as we often talk about on this podcast, about uh, some of the ways it can help the consumer, what are the unique innovations? And you've had a long cabinet career, which means that you've seen various angles on these things that you think financial tech can actually do to improve women's lives. 
Well, I think one of the things is the flexibility. So uh, and I think the, the recent weeks um, have, have encouraged more and more people to do things online. So, for example, we know that women often aren't getting enough financial advice on pension savings uh, or other uh, financial savings. Uh, the ability to do more of that online, I think more financial advisors are accepting that actually, you know, advice given via Zoom or, or via another platform is perfectly possible. And they're going to have to get into the uh, 21st century uh, on that. And, and even older uh, customers are finding they're living their lives online. Um, there are other fintech innovations. So, for example, uh, some lenders, fintech lenders, are specifically, I say targeting, but in a good way, trying to support NHS workers. Now, we know that disproportionately, again, more women work in the NHS, for example, um, who will find it difficult to go to a bank physically to talk about a mortgage uh, or to talk about, you know, some other aspect of their financial lives. So I think it's that flexibility. I think the trouble is that the use of the phrase fintech um, often is what scares people. And I think when you start talking about products, Monzo, Revolut, um, Starling Bank, um, just frankly, all our bank apps that we've downloaded on our phones that, that enable us to, to bank at whatever time of day or night we want to, it becomes a bit more accessible. And that's the worry is that, you know, we don't have enough women in fintech. And again, I think partly that's because our language puts people off and people think they've got to be some sort of computer whiz. When actually just understanding how ordinary people live their lives and want to access their money and get their advice about about money is enough I think to be to be successful in these fields. I just think um, Nikki is absolutely right there about the use of language like fintech I mean I know and I, I use it all the time myself but you know you know, fi- you know financial services after the financial crash and everything they don't have necessarily have the best reputation as being inclusive and understandable in fact think people think of them very complex and then tech itself is generally thought about thought of being complicated and uh, and can be thought of being complicated and being difficult. Whereas really this is just, it's about sort of about money and how people use money and being em- empowering people to be in control of their of their money and the way in which we we finance and fund things. And we, we do need to have a more open language about it because fin and tech can be the worst of both worlds for some people. Yeah, I mean, I, I could just uh, pick up on that inside. So not from a consumer angle, which, uh, you know, our purpose, obviously, when we're working in tech is to make things more consumable for a consumer. But I'm just going to pick up on the inclusive bit, because when you think about fintechs and they, they, they sort of they're characterized a little bit by having a disruptive mindset, you know, being disruptors. And I think, Chi, you mentioned it. And having challenge and outside in thought processes, but they're also characterized by uh, being flexible and being more innovative and being more inclusive and collaborative, because these are the things that really drive great end products for or services for consumers. And fintechs, what what um, what they've been teaching us. So as a as someone who works for um, you know one of uh, the big banks, we. We have embraced the fintech mindset and it's so, I mean, I am seeing such an amazing difference in the working environment because the number of females, the number of women that are actually getting in and being more collaborative because the method, the disruptive method plays to a mindset of being more collaborative, having a level playing field, being able to discuss and debate using research to really understand a problem rather than a very old traditional way of command control the person at the top has the answer and everybody just does so it's really fascinating uh, because I'm seeing more 
flexibility in the workforce and more collaboration, which is attracting more women. Now, the problem is once they're in the inside, they're going, wow, I'm really enjoying this. This is fabulous. I didn't realize you could work in this way. And it plays to the point, uh, Chi and Nikki, you're both making, which is we've got to demystify what it really means to work in this environment. Now, I'm learning from this podcast, which is about fintech. We should maybe not use the phrase fintech. But before we come up with a new way of talking about the thing that refers to Monzo, just giving things that we all use. She, it's been touched on there by Jill and Nikki, some positives, but ultimately pointing to the fact there is a problem. This is an industry that clearly has huge potential to help lots of groups. But all the early signs suggest that so far it has been pretty male dominated. Deloitte uh, said that less than 30% of the UK fintech tech workforce was female in 2017 and I think 17% of the senior roles were held by women so at the moment does fintech we'll go for now have a woman problem yeah I mean there's no way to it though I I really I'm not women it's not women who are the problem it is and I talk about this you know the financial services men in bowler hats in the city and technology men (laughs) uh, generally from Silicon Valley and bringing those two together really there was was an opportunity to leave if you like the the male dominated environments of both those uh, sectors and bringing it together and to be truly new and disruptive what would be truly disruptive in many for many fintech and you know tech and financial services companies would be to have gender parity that's probably one of the most disruptive ideas you could have right you could have right now and so i always think the statistics tell the story the ones that you just read out show quite clearly that fintech companies are not doing enough to have women at their high levels. And what that means is that the investors, and let's, you know, bring it back to the investors in those fintech companies are not doing enough to hold them to account and to make sure that they're looking for talent from across the board. And what that leads to is, and just to, you know, to finish up, what that leads to is a kind of group think, and that applies to the products and services. Because one of the reasons, again, that fintech inspires me is the way in which, for example, it could change the fact we've got 1.5 million people without a bank account. For lots of different reasons, you know, that's a, that's a huge market that fintech could be going after. But I think because of the lack of diversity in its uh, management and its uh, tech people and also in its investments, they're not looking at some of the problems which really if, could make transformative changes for people. And that's why, you know, that's why we need to see change. And Nikki, it's interesting, Chi there is talking about groupthink and Clearly, we should get on to how how you can get more women into this industry, the role of government, the role of industry. But I thought just before we get there, one of the topics I think that has arisen from coronavirus is the importance of having female voices in the room sometimes. So, for example, we saw with some of your former colleagues during the coronavirus uh, handling that it was often a group of very established ministers with lots of experience but predominantly male and I think it has been remarked on from lots of different you know parties it's not just a you know an opposition issue here that perhaps different mistakes might have been spotted if you had more diversity of opinion so from your perspective why is it important or is it important to have that mix around the boardroom table? 
Well, I think it's a it's a good question. I think it's 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 important to remind ourselves because we often are um, leap straight in and and say that diversity is a is a good thing without asking ourselves, you know, why that is. You know, fifty percent of our population is female, so uh, well, you do want them round the the table. Whether you're talking about the setting of interest rates, the setting up of new uh, fintech companies, whether you're talking about national government policy, uh, and I think we always have to be slightly mindful of the fact that, um, of course, there are lots of influential women at top of organisations. Uh, they may just not be the people that are picked up on by the newspapers and in you know the coronavirus case of course it just so happened that our chief medical officer and our chief scientific officer are also men but had it been six months ago we would have had dame sally davis as chief medical officer so look i mean i think uh, but the point is well made which is that you want a diversity of thought around boardroom tables or, or any kind of tables and i think that that is more accepted when i chaired the treasury select committee we set up the Women in Finance inquiry to build on the Women in Finance charter that the Treasury had launched. I mean, doing research for this, I mean, there are lots of great women in fintech. Really, the only person I could think of, though, who had really been sort of out there was Anne Bowden, as I say, from Starling Bank. I'm sure there are there are others. But I mean, you know, I think women have got to talk about their achievements. It's not enough just to just to do it, because, uh, you know, in order to encourage more women into uh, the field or it, it could we're not just not just women, uh, people from uh, BME backgrounds, everything else, they've got to see people like them at the top of those organisations. And Chi also made a really important point, which I want to come back on, which is about the importance of funders, because fintech works or fintech companies and, and startups work because somebody chooses to invest in them. And uh, I think there is no doubt uh, that equity providers, uh, debt providers will say that they are often not investing sufficiently in female-led companies. I was talking to a, a fintech backer investor earlier on, actually, and they said they're about to close three deals. Fun enough, two of them are with female founders, um, and they have particularly gone and sought that. But, you know, all, all of that goes to, to creating an environment that supports women to set, start up these businesses and then to go and look for finance and look for enough finance. And that's also things that uh, the people like the BBCA will tell, tell you is that actually often women are not asking for as much finance as, as the men are. And that in itself, um, you know, often you know, sort of sounds alarm bells for, for, for investors. So, so it's a whole ecosystem uh, that needs to be looked at. And you have to do this deliberately and you have to keep on doing it. And organisations like Innovate Finance, which are the trade body for fintech, need to keep talking about this and keep banging the drum. I just would support what you're saying, Nikki. I think it has to be really deliberate interventions because without being very deliberate about creating balance, we're not going to get the diversity through and it doesn't happen naturally. You have to really go and seek it out. And even in um, you know, my tech world, I have to be very deliberate about creating balance in my leadership team. And the, the people in the organisation need to see that, to believe it, because they need to see role models or people in top jobs that look like them or have a thought process that they can relate to. But I think overarchingly, we have to be really deliberate in both the government, uh, you guys, and the, the, you know, the banks like myself. We have to make sure that all of the good work that we're doing is highly visible. So we do need to amplify all of the really good work that's happening because there is an amount. I mean, I'm you know, really proud of what we do here within Lloyd's. So we do an enormous amount of stuff to help promote women, to go after women entrepreneurs, but we do need to find the vehicles that really amplify it. And I'm sure to your point, Nikki, that, you know, six months ago, we would have a, a female chief 
medical officer. I didn't even know that. Wow. So that that tells you something, doesn't it? We're not amplifying enough when we create these, um, you know, when, when great women get these great jobs so that everyone can go, yeah, that's, that's what I want to be. That's that's who I want to follow. Now, just briefly, one report looking at the lack of balance at the moment in terms of gender in the sector said that the risk is you have men making products for men, not on purpose, but it just ends up being tailored that way. Now, it's great to have three successful women on this podcast, but I wondered... You surely at some point in your career would have had a situation where you have seen how the negative, I suppose, the byproduct of of not having enough diversity in those rooms. So I just thought for listeners, could one of you perhaps give us a sense of the type of type of way that happens in a way, you know, the things that you might miss out on and how it manifests itself. Are we talking about specific things, a bit blunt, like no one's talking about childcare or are we talking about much more subtle I think it's a bit of both, honestly, Uh, but I do think that uh, so childcare is a really good example. So, I mean, it's what we're seeing in the, the the virus crisis at the moment. And as a former education secretary, I'm very hesitant about saying schools should be reopened because they provide childcare, because obviously schools do much more than that. But what we know is that working from home is becoming increasingly difficult for women because of the ongoing issues around childcare and trying to do homeschooling. Most parents' hearts sink at the prospect of a six-week summer holiday anyway, coming off the back of 14, 15 weeks of homeschooling. Um, it's impossible. And what, what I'm hearing is that it's the women who are talking to their bosses and saying, I'm not sure I can do this much longer. I'm not sure I'm matching up to what you want from me. It's incumbent on bosses to say, we understand the limitations. But then feeding that back in. So that's where the voices um, at national scientific policy levels, you know, are those voices being heard when those discussions about you know, reopening or easing of lockdown are being you know, decided. And it's the same then with banking for, for women. I mean, women have different requirements, different working patterns in terms of saving for the future, preparing for uh, older age. And if you don't have women's voices around the top uh, or the discussions in financial services organisations, then they're thinking along the sort of the, the lines of male working patterns, not female working patterns. Just, just to add on to that, I think that, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'll just return two points I made. First point about you know, it's one point five million people don't have don't have a bank account, and low income families, you know, it is predominantly women, and so often women who are in charge of the finances there. But why are they not a target for the huge potential? of uh, fintech in this area because fintech you know they're not profitable these these income streams aren't profitable enough for the big banks but fintech should be able to you know uh, use technology to make them more accessible but they're not really a target for that and that is because there's not enough people with that kind of experience or that kind of um you know just insight around in fintech organizations but then just an example from my i was um i i was in nigeria building out the first gsm network in 2001 two and so you know there was it's mo- it was mobile phones and what we didn't realize or what the people at, at the head of the company didn't realize was that they started being used by market women in Nigeria as effectively banks because the credit could be used the credit could be used as money and banks were not trusted at that time in Nigeria
Syria for a whole host of reasons. And so they actually, that actually was an example of liberating, if you like, market women, because then they had control over their own finances and that they had a safe and trusted way of taking and storing credit. So sometimes they can be unforeseen um, pro- products, and uh, you know, which, and that's a, what's the great opportunity of technology generally, and fintech in particular. But in order to really target that at the, the sort of key problems we're facing, and that women in particular are facing, uh, and low-income families are facing, you need much more diversity at the top. You do, and there's an, uh, there's two angles to it. There's definitely that angle, but there is also the angle about how do we help the vulnerable and th- this one and a half million uh, underrepresented in, in this market who don't have bank accounts, how do we help educate those folks with digital skills um, that allow them to then be receptive to the innovation that the fintechs and uh, folks can offer them. And I think that's where, again, we have to have really deliberate interventions, really deliberate campaigns of accessibility training, helping, uh, you know, I know uh, you you guys will know that uh, within Lloyds we have that, the, the academy, and we've made that free and online accessible to everyone. And, I, and in fact, we're using some of our amplifiers in there in the job, job network and the DWP to help get that out to those who are more vulnerable. But there is an education program where we do need to help uh, many people understand that banking on a mobile phone is actually a safe and secure thing to do and gives them the training that allows them to make sure they are safe and securing and build up that confidence actually about how to use and how to be receptive to some of the innovations that are coming down. Because I think, Chi, that there is quite a lot of innovation out there. It's just how do you actually channel it to the to the places that need it most and how will they be receptive to it? I mean, Joe, I think you're absolutely right. There's huge amounts of innovation and potential uh, and potential for innovation out there and we really need to ensure that everyone you know has the, has more people certainly have the skills that they need to access it and also to be in con- you know to to drive it as well because people should be driving some of these innovative changes it's all about decisions that we are making and i suppose to katie to a point your question you asked earlier about how does group think prevent kind of that happening or how does a lack of diversity prevent that happening one of the things which always strikes me is you know when particularly when talking to uh silicon you know, it's often silicon valley startup is this view that as long as you as long as you've got tech you don't need anything else it's like it's just, if you've got dual core processing then who needs to, government if you like who needs any support or education because you can go out there and find it on the web and i think you know yeah <laughs> and you know that unfortunately that is a sort of stream of thought that drives you know that, that drives some of the some of the of the investment in sort of technology innovation and what we need to do is to is to put in place the, the structures and the support to make sure that this is accessible and for me really importantly people are not just consuming technology, but they're driving technology and where that innovation is going. Now, I want to end by talking about skills and retraining. But before we do, Nikki, I just wanted, just looking back on what everyone's just contributed, and Jill's talking about how industry, and she personally takes on an active role, both in addressing your own team balance, but also, you know, thinking about the products. What do you think is the role for government here versus industry? Do you think this is something government should be intervening on? On staffing, we often hear about, you know, quotas, something which doesn't always uh, land too well with the Tory uh, rank and file. So what do you think the balance is or should be? 
Well, I think government asking questions and shining a spotlight. So, so the Treasury's Women in Finance Charter and extending that and encouraging more businesses, uh, including fintech businesses and fintech funders, to sign up to that is definitely one thing. I think obviously creating the, the business conditions. So, for example, the Chancellor in one of the measures, the coronavirus measures, has been a, creating the Future Fund, which has been very much about supporting tech or, or start-up, startup businesses, basically, small businesses, sometimes who haven't yet been able to turn a profit, but actually promise uh, great things for the future. And as a country, we talk a lot about investing in digital and tech opportunities. So we have to, the government has to put its money where its, its mouth is on that and uh, and support them uh, and I think also being open to so one of the things the Financial Conduct Authority created something called the Sandbox which allows financial services tech companies to try out new new ideas new products in a in a way that is in a sort of safe environment if you like and that doesn't have to follow all the regulations but people know that this is a this is a startup and that's actually been a model that's been you know looked at and copied around the world so it doesn't always have to be necessarily government doing it but government being involved and I I think actually in Rishi we've got a chancellor who himself has worked in financial services he does understand this um, and there is a real there is a real desire to you know we're all smiling but I mean I think actually having ministers she's raising got that her, practical... her eyebrows slightly via zoom so. <laughs> the raised eyebrow well I think having ministers having ministers with practical experience of these things and it's it's said that he designed the future fund you know himself based on his experience I think is a you know is a really good thing uh, because he knows then what What's going to galvanise people to, to, to use those funds? I just hope he's learnt the right lessons from the financial crash and the financial services with which he was intimately involved. Let me put it that way. Well, I think, to be fair, I think the financial services sector in the last few, I think they were very mindful of what happened in 2008 in the last 12 weeks. And actually, as a result, most of them have responded in a way. We'll have to see, you're right, what happens when obviously companies that are taken on debt how that is paid off and on what terms and what, you know, understanding the banks show. But I think um, nobody who went through the uh, the financial crash being either working in it or working near it uh, could fail to be shaped by it. Yeah, I mean, you just have to look at what uh, the the banks and, you know, again, our, our bank in particular, what we've loaned out to the small businesses. Uh, I agree with you, Nikki. I think the response collectively has been fantastic, actually, from from our banks and and the policies that uh, the Chancellor set out. So uh, the next stage will be part of that recovery and how do we handle, how do we help those small businesses really recover? And um, that will be the next big test for us all, I think. Can I just say, I get lots of constituency casework from small businesses who do not feel that the banks have, their banks have helped them. And I know that will be the exception. There will be other businesses, many small businesses who don't get in touch with me who have been helped, but either they haven't been able to access the loans or that they can't access the, the right loan for them in the right way. So just, just to, not, not to, just to, just just to temper balance, enthusiasm, just, just to temper the enthusiasm, yes, of the constituents. In a way that does actually lead us to the, the final part of this podcast, which is not all businesses are going to survive and lots of people are going to lose their jobs and the next probably more than just the next year are going to be very difficult for this country and one thing we've heard from the government is that they want to be able to you know reskill up the population so if you lose your job you will be able to find another job ideally a, a good job so what is the role, Jill, you think that technology can play in this, you know, reskilling of the population? Do, do you think there is, if you think about practically how we're going to do this, do you think that digital is going to play a big role? 
Yeah, huge, absolutely huge role. And I agree the, uh, with the previous comments around, you know, we have to demystify the language first. But I do think I'm really passionate about making sure that we actually really target the reskilling into digital skills. Because I think that there will create more and more opportunities. We know that uh, when we look ahead, there's a gap in digital skills in this country. And we have a you know, a moment in time where we can put all of our efforts behind that. And, and again, that's why we've made sure that our academy is online and free for everyone. I have so many of our engineers go into the into branches and do code clubs with, you know, actually with quite a lot of youngsters in, in schools as well. But actually now it's making sure that we get people who need that reskilling, working with the job centres. That's a fantastic network that we could really exploit to help a load of people, actually. So, Chi, what do you think are the obstacles when it comes to, you know, retraining? And there's obviously an appetite to do this digitally, both for industry and the, and the government. But going back to some of Nikki's previous points, there are clearly, you know, if you are furloughed and you're at home alone, there are clearly some big problems that come from that loneliness uh, and others, but you also have the ability to focus on this in a way that if you're at home, you know, with children, you're also looking after it, or perhaps yeah. you just don't feel as though it is inviting to, to, you know, to go and use this technology. So what do you think the big challenges are when it comes to reskilling the country? Well, I think it is a huge, it's a huge, huge challenge. And and I think one just sort of a silver lining, if you like, is that it's part of this challenge you would have needed anyway, because the fourth industrial revolution, the transformation of, you know, society and particularly our economy, manufacturing, etc., all sectors by technology was happening. And so, uh, you know, there was a huge need for reskilling. Making it work in practice, there is not one answer. I do think that, you know, big companies and organizations like Lloyds and others have a real role to play because part of the challenge with reskilling and, and digital skills in particular is that it has to be made real for people. It, it's not something that you can really learn about in theory. You have to be using it. And for that, you have to have access to people and you know, who are inspired by it, who know how to use it. And I would really you know, say, say going into schools in particularly and how get, getting up the IT skills in schools. But the other thing I would say, Katie, is, and this has been neglected for too long, is sort of in lifelong learning. So, and that means having educational facilities which are open in the evenings or at times when there is more, you know, that people can be flexible about childcare re- requirements. So, and do give one-to-one uh, engagement because not everything can be done online and in big groups. It needs to, we need to have the funding for adult education and lifelong skills to really make this work. And Chi, if I could just build on it, I think there's society, I'm feeling that people really want to contribute. And I know inside our own org, my own organisation, there's 20,000 digital champions. I mean, that's a phenomenal amount of people and they volunteer regularly to go do things. Now, and we're really supportive of that. We could get that even more visible so that they get access to helping in the evening when adults want to learn after um, school. And our partnerships with folks like Google, we've got this amazing partnership with Google where we're using their uh, the Google Garage, which again is just another way of an online learning. And, you know, we could help people walk through that. So I do think that there's, there is a, a will and an ability to really go after that. And I think a combined force of government and 
organisations, uh, that's the thing that creates the magic and creates the intervention. Yeah, I think actually the, it's interesting, the pandemic has taught us a lot about how a virus moves through the community and through communities and tracking that. What we're going to see is having sort of digital, viral digital skills moving through the community. And maybe we can use some of the same tools to track that. Nikki, we talked a lot about the innovation. There's obviously lots of uh, good things in the works, but ultimately we are getting a bit back to basics here though, because you can have all these great things to use, but ultimately there's still obviously a basic issue in the sense that lots of people in the country don't have access to fast internet yet. A government ambition, but it's not about to arrive you know, in the next few weeks. And also when we're looking at how people uh, remotely access um, digital learning, which we're going to have to have some of if, if we're living with social distancing for some time, lots of people just don't have iPads, laptops to use that. So are we getting ahead of ourselves in the sense that lots of people just don't even have the basics yet? Up to a point. I mean, I think what's been remarkable is that our broadband has held up quite as well as it as it has. And that's testament, actually, to the companies and engineers who have worked, you know, massively hard to, to, to keep it all keep it all going. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think we see with homeschooling that the, the digital divide absolutely is 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 there. But equally, as a constituency MP, obviously more people now access all sorts of services online, um, including welfare uh, advice and, and benefits. So there is some advice. I mean, she's right in a way. The fourth industrial revolution is when it's here. If anything, I think access to digital has been accelerated by the last few weeks. People who would have said they would never do stuff online have had no choice but to to do so. I think it goes back to where we started which is we need to talk about it in a way that is accessible. So, you know, we need to talk about it in terms of not coding, but actually about designing websites, understanding customers. You know, many small businesses, I'm a trustee of a very small mental health charity. We've just reopened our our cafe shop, but actually we're going to have to do more and more online. We've already been doing it. And so actually having skills and help from people to put our stock online um, and be able to pay online, you know, is one little bit where we're, we're leaping into the digital age. That's one little business and actually that's going to happen all over the, the, the country so those those skills and encouragement but it's got to be something that is accessible we've also got to inform I think a lot of the the job coaches and others including in our schools about the range of jobs available I mean I've only recently discovered for example there is a job in teaching the smart speakers um, how we all speak and I think they call them conversation coaches or something. Who knew, even five years ago, that that would be a job uh, that people were doing more and more. So there's lots of opportunities out there. Uh, we just have to have to, to make, break them down and talk about them in a way that people think, yeah, actually, I could do that. On the conversational analyst job, Nikki, we had a lady who took the call centre calls. Ten years experience of really understanding customers she wanted a change in career. We pulled her into our intelligent automation division, which is all about using chatbots and you know using technology. And she is one of the top people that designs the chatbot conversations to connect with customers. And she is so fantastic. And that is like a career change for her into technology based on being a person who dealt with customers over the phone. And that's the sort of transition that really shows how how you can change career and that's fab fabulous so it was. 
Um, I think it's absolutely true that the last that the pandemic has huge. There's been a mass migration online, and you know, years I think of online activity have been consolidated or into a few months. And that has been, I see, my local fishmongers has gone online. That has been really good in many ways. The Ofcom report says that we are spending, I think, it's a, you know, more time than ever online, and that it's the uh, uh, elderly people who have led the way and has had the greatest change in a way. But, you know, there is a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place to support that. Talking about the skills, talking about cyber security, you know, know, so to protect people from scamming, protect businesses, all these small businesses that have moved online because their premises have shut, protect protect them for that. But also the infrastructure, and it is true, uh, as Nikki says, that the infrastructure held up much better than anticipated. But there were still places, you know, we still have, for the majority benefit have been able to to stay online but there are still many places that don't have access to to high speed broadband and we really do need to have that investment in 5g in super fast broadband because we can't have like a digital divide you know it's only a smaller proportion of the population but we can't have a digital divide that means that means right you know that a significant portion of the population can't access these businesses can't access these learning opportunities and can't access you know the the great new jobs which i do believe a fourth industrial revolution can bring Thank you, Chi. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Jill. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, just to flag, the Women with Balls podcast is going to take a brief summer recess, but we'll be back in due course with a list of new guests. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions of people you would like to hear on this podcast, do get in touch. You can either email myself directly at cablespectator.co.uk or our general podcast email, which is podcast.spectator.co.uk. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectators podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.